Welcome again to Evergreen Covenant Church and a special welcome to our podcast listeners. Good morning. My name is Al Lopez. This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. So please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, from the New American Standard Bible. The title of this section is called, Keep Fervent in Your Love. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised when you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they will live in the spirit according to the will of God. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, I want to start off this morning with a word of prayer, if you don't mind, and ask you to bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for your word that we're going to look at today. We pray that it would, as the title says, uh, cause us to be alive, give us energy and hope and uh, strength uh, for all that you have for us. I pray that you would visit us in a special way at this time and encourage us and do surgery on our hearts and help us to uh, see blind spots and see ourselves and our world uh, as you see it and help us to change and grow. We look to you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in, uh, heading towards the finish line here uh, in a series called Faith, Hope, and Love through the book of 1 Peter. And uh, I don't know uh, what you think so far. I feel like it's been a really good series for me. I've had a really good time studying this book. I've never preached on the book of 1 Peter before. Uh, but it is a Bible study that I did in college when I was part of InterVarsity, and uh, my wife Susie used to be in my Bible study, and so I think about Susie when I, as I'm studying these passages, and I remember uh, just feeling like, if I can't get this woman to marry me, life's not worth living. And I keep having that thought as I'm studying the passages, and apropos to today, we're going to talk about... Uh, life and death, and if you will, heaven and hell. 
The title of today's talk is Alive, and I want to ask the question, what does it mean to be fully alive? And what does it mean uh, if you are dying, if death is near you, and death is something that you are experiencing in some way, shape, or form, even as you live? I believe God designed and created us according to his own image. We're not just some random result of a random or arbitrary process. We have been thought about. Uh, It's what the scriptures call creation. That there is a loving and intelligent being behind who we are and what we are and how we are. And that is what we call the image of God. We reflect a creator. And therefore, if we are not the result of some random process, but we are a result of an intelligent and loving and thoughtful and deliberate creator, that means God's will matters a lot to us. Because if we live according to the author's design and purpose, we live in harmony There's a kind of alignment that we experience in our lives. So there's tension points that we don't experience or are released from if we are living in alignment with God's will. And this is what Peter mentions here in this passage, this idea of God's will. And he also talks about this concept of sin. And in the book of 1 Peter, I've mentioned this now several times, the word that Peter often equates with our word sin is the Greek word epithumia. And epithumia are two words put together. Epi means over. Thumia simply means desire. And so when we over-desire, when we desire something inordinately, When we desire something absolutely, when we desire something that's against God's design, then we experience what Peter in this passage today calls death. And so we have life, which is connected to us living according to God's will by virtue of the fact that we are created beings. We have a designer. We have a function that we were meant for a way we are to live. And if we ignore that, if we live according to whatever else, then we begin to experience a breaking. And that's what scriptures call sin or epithumia or death. Today we're going to see that life equals God's will and death equals separation from God and his will. And then we'll finally end with Jesus' mission, which is to save those who are living separated from God's will in their life, those that Peter calls dead. Uh, For me, by design, I think relationships are one of the biggest deals. I know when I was uh, madly in uh, pursue mode with Susie, uh, that was life for me. Can you imagine how much it made my day? if she smiled at me, and how much it broke my day if she ignored me, or 
It's the way I'm wired. And even to this day, if there is discord in a relationship in my life, I feel sort of this despair and this distancing and some pre-abandonment and negativity and a kind of hopelessness. What I would feel like, what I would imagine death feels like. And I just feel bad and I feel down and I feel funky and weird. And I can't quite be focused on anything and I feel distracted from everything. But when I experience repair and redemption in that relationship, then suddenly I feel lighter and there's energy in my body and there's a, a motivation for life that I feel and positively, positivity and I feel this ability to love, capacity for love within myself. That's what relationships are to me. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Susie and I, uh, experienced in our relationship what used to be weekly uh, little fights. Or I'm not even sure what to call it because it's not really a fight. Uh, but now, you know, they became monthly and now we're looking at 18 years of marriage and it's kind of like a semi-annual event. It's like a Macy sale or something. Uh, but it's just sort of this, uh, just, oh, I still feel not great about this, and we start communicating with each other, and we feel sort of stuck and hopeless, and we sort of look at each other and go, oh, how are we going to get through this? And it lasts for a few days, and it's gone, like it never was. And everything's back to normal, and life is great. And then six months later, something triggers it, and it comes back, and it's been that way for 18 years. But I think it's quite an improvement, because it really used to be a weekly event, but I feel life energy just returning and flowing. Or when things aren't great, death energy. It's, it's the word thanatos, death. Starts ruling the day and ruling my being. What is life and death for you? What feels like a taste of heaven for you? And what feels like a taste of hell for you? What makes life great? And life kind of miserable. So two points today. First, hell. And second, heaven. Okay, we'll start with hell, get that out of the way, and we'll get to the good stuff. Okay? First, hell. I'm not going to even write it for you on the top. You'll just have to trust me. This is the point we're going to start with. And I want to look at verse 1 and verse 2 specifically. Uh, let me preface this by saying that this is my reading of this passage and other passages in the Bible that I'm going to bring in to help illuminate these scriptures. And uh, hell is one of these topics that uh, lots of uh, amazing scholars have lots of differing opinions about. And this is sort of my take on what hell at least, at the least is. I don't know the fullest extent of what it is, but I know at the least, I think it involves what I'm about to share with you. We'll look at verse 1. Verse 1, I want you to see the phrase, ceased from sin. Now, uh, we uh, have defined here uh, from this pulpit, I have defined uh, sin, a, a very practical, functional definition for sin for me is an illegitimate way of meeting legitimate needs. 
So it's to validate uh, that we all have needs. We all bring forth our humanity to each other and to God and to the resources of this world. And not all of those legitimate needs are met. And when our needs aren't met in legitimate ways, then we start grasping at solutions, ways to meet these needs. And oftentimes, these ways are illegitimate. They're not the proper way to meet legitimate needs. If God designed us for gasoline and we start pouring orange juice into our tanks, it doesn't quite work, right? And so sin will define it again as illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. Needs. And then in verse 2, we have this word lusts again. It's the word epithumia. To be fair to this word, sometimes this word is a positive word. Uh, at its best, it means an extremely strong desire. And so Paul says he has epithumia to be with the Lord. He has a strong desire to be with the Lord, but for your sakes, I'm glad that I am remaining here on earth. That's what Paul says in one of his letters. But here in the book of 1 Peter, we have this word translated as lusts or over desires. And the first takeaway from this, putting together the word sin and putting together with this word lust, we have that sin is from within. We have these needs that aren't being met. And from within, we begin to figure out ways to meet these needs. And we start over-desiring, epithumia, over-desiring ways to meet these needs. And as a way to do that, because of the resentment we begin to feel towards God for, quote-unquote, not meeting these needs in legitimate ways, as we start grasping at false solutions for ourselves, what we inevitably start doing is we start pushing God and his will away from us, and we start claiming independence from God. God, if you aren't going to meet my needs, then I have to meet these needs by myself, on my own, in my own timing, by my own strength, by whatever means necessary. This is sometimes what the scriptures call in the flesh. When you start thinking creatively on your own, thinking I will do whatever I need to do to to have my needs met. Sin and lust. So one way we can understand sin is this. Sin starts as separation from God. And by the time you're done, it ends with a desire to be separated from God. You begin to have a change of heart and will as your heart hardens over time. God doesn't meet need number one. God doesn't meet need number two, number three, number four, number five. By the time you get down the list, your heart is hardened and you're no longer looking to God to have your needs met anymore. You simply now don't want anything to do with God anymore because in your mind, in your narrative, God has failed you in some way. You start having a change of heart and will against God. So what we see in Scripture as it describes a human condition is you start with a legitimate need. You feel it hasn't been met. 
You start grasping at needs on your own. So in order to do that, you begin separating yourself from God, but your heart begins to change in the process, and that sin journey ends with not just a separation from God, but a desire to be separated from God, to be your own God. And so here we have the beginnings of what hell might be like. C.S. Lewis, a great Christian thinker, he says that hell, at the least, can be described philosophically as locked from the inside. In the end, you will have what your heart truly desires. And if you go down the pathway of not desiring God, then in the end, what you will receive is no God at all. No longer will you be pursuing God, but God won't be pursuing you either. You begin to reach a point of no return. The illegitimate ways that you have created and gathered for yourself become permanent pathways and habits and muscle memory in your life. And so in verse 5 and 6, Peter talks about Jesus judging the living and the dead and mentions Jesus preaching even to the dead. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing, and I want to bring in some other passages. I want you to read a few verses with me. The first one is a little bit longer, but it's a story. So I really want you to get the whole story. And it's a story that's unique in that it's not a story told by some human author. It's told by Jesus himself. And, uh, you know, readers and, and uh, uh, theologians wonder how much of Jesus' story is based on actual events. Okay, it's from Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. Follow along with me as I read the story. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to a place that Jesus calls Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham from far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Interesting story. I want to point out a couple of things to you. I want you to notice that this place that Jesus calls Abraham's bosom, it's not quite like heaven or hell that's described elsewhere in Scripture. Notice there's a chasm, and notice there is visibility across this chasm. And notice the place that the poor man goes to uh, is where Abraham is also. He's the father of our faith, a patriarch, uh, and This man is being held by Abraham in his bosom. And there's apparently ability to communicate across this chasm verbally. And you can see each other visually. You just can't span the chasm. Just put some mental bookmarks uh, along these descriptors. And notice something else. Notice that this torment, this place of torment, as Jesus calls it, uh, or as the rich man calls it in Jesus' story, notice that the heat that this man experiences, this fire, is not on the outside. His clothes aren't burning. His hair's not burning. His skin's not burning. That's the way we typically think about hell. That's the way it's depicted in cartoons and in movies and in uh, pop culture and literature. But here we see that the fire is not actually outside, but it's a kind of fire on the inside. And notice what the man uh, is requesting What does he want? Some water to be brought to cool his tongue. Isn't that interesting? This man, if he's burning at all, he is burning not on the outside, but from within. But notice how he believes his tongue deserves to be cooled by who? By the servant. He still believes being in this place of torment that he has a servant, and it's Lazarus. And Lazarus is the one who ought to go and fetch some water to cool his tongue. And this is where Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, points out, this man still wants to be in hell. It's locked from the inside. The very epithumia, the sense of entitlement, the way he treated Lazarus on the outside is the way he became on the inside permanently and forever. And as C.S. Lewis says, you start by grumbling, and soon enough you become nothing more than a grumble. Here's the rich man, still apparently wealthy as ever, able to boss people around, feeling entitled, even as he is in torment. He is Unable to see the state of his own spirit and heart. Now, put a bookmark there. I want to read something to you from Jeffrey Burns. He's the president-elect of National Kidney Foundation, and he's a nephrologist at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, because of the things with ISIS and everything, people have been asking him, uh, because so many young kids are dying of thirst, intentionally being dehydrated to death. And so uh, they're asking Jeffrey Burns what their experience is like for these kids who are uh, being tortured and killed in this way. And he says this, Thirst, as you probably know, is one of the most potent drives for behavior we have. It may be the most potent we have more than even hunger. People are going to be miserable. 
The human body is about 60% water, and under normal conditions, if it's not replaced over time and dehydration becomes severe, cells throughout the body will begin to shrink as water moves out of them and into the bloodstream. Part of the body's effort to keep the organs in fluid. All the cells will shrink, but the ones that count are the brain cells. They don't operate normally when they're shrinking. Changes in mental status will follow, including confusion and ultimately coma. As the brain becomes smaller, it takes up less room in the skull, and blood vessels connecting it to the inside of the cranium can pull away and rupture. Without water, blood volume will decline, and all the organs will start to fail. Kidney failure will soon lead to disastrous consequences and ultimately death as blood volume continues to fall and waste products that should be eliminated from the body remain. He goes on to teach how the feeling of thirst in the mouth becomes one of the uh, more felt symptoms, but he notes that it cannot be relieved by water on the mouth. Death by dehydration will continue to persist until the patient or the person reaches a point, quote-unquote, of no return when he can no longer hydrate himself. And the only way to reverse the process of death by dehydration is by external medical intervention. Now, this is a little bit graphic, but I want you to understand what uh, it might be like for your spirit to experience a kind of spiritual dehydration. If you were actually made for God, by God, just the way you look at a child and say, you were meant to be hugged, your face was meant to be eaten, so cute, meant to be held and adored and cherished for the whole of your life. And then you begin to extract and deprive that child of the very thing that children were made for. If your spirit was made for something and by something, and you began to be deprived, what is happening to you, to your spiritual cells, to your spiritual organs, to your spiritual brain? What if God was being being extracted from you? What is that kind of deprivation and darkness like? What happens if spiritually you reach a point of no return where you can no longer save yourselves, that you are now as good as dead? And not only are you a sinner, but you are sin. That's all you are capable of doing. What if there is no one good, no, not one? What if you are dead in your transgressions? What if the only hope you have is external intervention? That only somebody from the outside can actually prevent the course that you are definitely on? What if you pant and you thirst and you feel the dryness of your spiritual mouth? And yet no water on your tongue can satisfy you. I want to read you a few more verses. John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus says this later. John says this about Jesus. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, 
And so that scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, this is Jesus saying this on the cross. And John says that he says this so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Now, this man has been tortured. He's he's been beaten to an inch of his life. He has a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, pierced, shamed, hanging, asphyxiating on a cross. Do you think right now he's suddenly realizing, oh, actually I'm kind of thirsty. He's not talking about his physical thirst. He, in fact, the scriptures say he was like a, a lamb led to the slaughter. Not one Word of complaint found on his lips. And yet he's suddenly realizing, I'm a little thirsty. This isn't physical thirst, my friends. This is spiritual thirst. It's he who knew no sin becoming sin for us. This is Jesus experiencing the spiritual thirst that this rich man was beginning to experience in this place that he called a place of torment, place with a chasm place where he was across from Abraham's bosom, where his tongue was dried out spiritually and yet no water can quench his thirst because he's thirsty on a cellular level. This is Jesus experiencing the separation from the Father. This is the abandonment of God. And as God himself is being extracted from the Son of God, he says, I am thirsty so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama samakdani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is God? I feel it, not just in my body. The body part was easy, but spiritually, God, where are you? His world, it was like in spin cycle. All of the God was being pulled away out of him. And he's feeling the forsakenness of God on our behalf. Being extracted of God so that we can be with God, so that God can be in us. Matthew 27. Again, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Man, one of those weird verses in the Bible. The curtain, first of all, wasn't torn by man because it wasn't torn from the bottom, torn from the top, from above. It's God himself removing the barrier between God and man. How? Through the thirst of Christ, of course. And what's happening? The tombs are opened and many bodies of who? The saints who had fallen asleep, which is uh, biblical uh, euphemism for dead. Saints who died, were raised from the dead, and they were coming out of the tombs. And then after Jesus' resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. But even before Jesus' resurrection, these tombs are now out. Where did they come from? And this is where the Peter theory comes in. You don't have to 
take this part as from Scripture, but I believe I have studied and I have the Spirit of God in me, as Paul would say. I think my my piecing these things together, these saints of old, before Jesus said it is finished, when it wasn't finished, because no one can come to the Father but through me, Jesus said, because of that fact that there's only one way, the way, the truth, and the life, that is, Jesus Christ himself, until his death was accomplished, I believe the saints of old, I believe everybody, was being held in a place that was separated by a chasm. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching. This is where I think Catholics get the idea of purgatory. And so we have this place called a place of torment, but there is temporary and partial comfort to those who have put their faith in God through Christ, the coming Christ, or actually in Christ And they're being comforted by Abraham, who is the father of our faith in the coming Messiah, who did not trust in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of the one who attributed righteousness to him, that is Christ. Right? So that's Abraham. So Abraham is in this place just with the rich man, with the poor man, with everybody, but there's a chasm. And when Jesus finally did die, and he said, I am thirsty, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. And then he breathed his last. Then, and only then, were the saints released. And now they're on their way to be with Christ. And they were able then to actually be on their way fully to be with God for the first time in their existence after his resurrection. And I think... You know, you put a couple of things together, and it's not that strange. It kind of makes sense to me. And you have to think about that on your own if you've never heard this um, theory put forth before. Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants for the streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? God. That's not just a rhetorical question. It's an expression of the deepest desire of the heart. When can I go and finally be joined with God? Because he is water to me. God is water to me. And as the deer pants for the water, my soul thirsts for God. Job chapter 34 says this, If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to what? The dust. So we are made in God's image by God for God. And when we are separated from God, we begin to experience a kind of thirst, something that I've called need today. And I want to share with you that your need is legitimate. It's a spiritual thirst for your creator. It's an orphan's longing for parental love. It's a friend's desire for friendship. It's as real and as true as the image of God himself, born out of the spiritual community that we know as the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect connection to each other. And when this Trinity was disintegrating for Jesus on the cross. He began to experience a kind of thirst that you and I only experience a touch of. 
And all of the illegitimate ways of meeting this spiritual thirst is what we call sin. And layers and layers and offshoots of these illegitimate ways is what leads to a broken world. And the scriptures teach that even creation itself, the rocks, inanimate objects, anything that has being is crying out for the children of God to be reunited with their maker so that the whole of creation can be put in proper order because we all together are thirsty for the true and living God. But I tell you, if God were to withdraw his breath fully from even the worst of the worst, they would simply return to the dust because how can you be when God is the great I am? He is being. And if God were to extract all of himself fully But every time we sin, every time we reach out and say, I don't need God. Why do I need God's opinion on this? This is my life. I have rights. I am entitled. I have needs. He's let me down. Every time we start spinning the narrative, whatever narrative we need in order to gain and maintain independence from God, we are experiencing increasing spiritual thirst. And the hell we experience here on earth begins to grow and grow and grow. And this is what 1 Peter is describing in today's passage. This sense of abandonment to your illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. I know Christians have a thing with drunkenness. And I understand that. Because it's a way of spinning, letting these illegitimate ways begin to define you, begin to take over your life. And for long, if that keeps happening in your life in other ways, I'm not just talking about substances, but all the collection of illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. What happens to you? Your life becomes defined by these things. And then... Your tolerance for those who don't participate with you in that life, they become intolerable to you. That's what 1 Peter is saying. They're surprised that you don't run with them towards the same acts of dissipation. We all have addictions in our life. We all have very present and real illegitimate ways. But I want you to know at the center of that, at the heart of that, start of that, is a thirst for God because you are made in God's image. And that's where heaven comes in. Verse 2 and 6 talks. Uh, uh, I want you to notice in verse 2 and 6 and in verse 5 and 6 some contrasting words. We have, for example, the lust of men versus the will of God. That's verse 2 and 6. And then in verse 5 and 6, we have another set of contrasting words. Death versus life. And then notice in verse 1, 5, and 6, Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who cried, I am thirsty. He's the one who's caught in the middle of it all. So you ready? What is happening here is that scripture sometimes turn up the contrast on reality as a way to help us to see what ultimate reality is like. 
There will come a time in life when all we will have in reality is contrasted reality. You know what contrast does? It makes the white things whiter and the dark things darker. Bright becomes brighter and darkness disappears. When you play with Photoshop or you start editing your photos, you realize how powerful contrast is. It helps you to see the things that are most obviously there. And in scripture, sometimes the writers will turn up the contrast so that you can see the things that are really there. But in the middle, right now, this thing that you and I, we call life, the only reason life as we know it today is possible is because Jesus is caught in the middle. Remember, we talked about this, that he is the one who is absorbing all of this evil and wickedness and sin in our life today so that he can buy us time before the reality becomes too contrasted for us. But there will come a time when there is heaven and hell and nothing in between. Right now we live in between by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He is absorbing us. He is absorbing all the grayscale in the middle so that you and I have opportunity and time. The scriptures talk about the patience of God, not wanting anyone to perish. But that time will not always be. When it's time, it's time. That means it's time. And the truth about that time is we don't know when it's going to be time. That's another theme in Scripture. There's God's will. And then there's death and hell. And surely Jesus in the end will come to judge the living and the dead. Not yet. We have time. But we will not always have time, is what Peter is teaching here. And even if you don't acknowledge Jesus, even if he's not real to you, I know you've experienced touches of heaven. And I'm telling you, if you have, it's because you are living in alignment with the image of God in which you were created. And some of you have experienced a taste of hell in your life. Maybe some of you are going through it right now where you feel like you're in a spin cycle and all that is good and true and beautiful is being sucked out of your life. And if that's true for you, there are ways that God is able to help because of what Jesus has done for you and what he's doing right now to buy you time. That's why the scriptures call Jesus our great mediator. He is mediating this gap between heaven and hell. This grayscale we call life. He's holding it up now, providing cover for us. But this patience of God will not always be. And this grayscale we call life, this is the closest thing we have to heaven right now. Or... Or it is the closest thing we have to hell right now. Did Jesus go to preach to the dead, like spiritually dead? Was he 
at the place that he called Abraham's bosom? Did he go to the place? I think he did. That's my personal thinking. That right after he died, his spirit went to this place. And he said to the saints of old, come on, let's go. And then they came out of the tombs. And they're walking around being seen by people. And then three days later, he said, okay, let's go. Time to go. I think that's what happened. I really do. It's not strange to me as I begin to understand the metaphors. Jesus' death, you understand? His death qualifies him at once to be the Savior and the judge. Because not only did he do the saving work of dying for our sins and becoming sin for us, he reached out to those who are even dead. And if hell is truly locked from the inside and you reject him still, then he has every authority and right than to judge the living and the dead. Nobody else, no one else, not you nor I, are qualified to judge. And here Jesus stands, having died and now resurrected, sitting in God's right hand to judge. I want him to be my judge. He is merciful, he is good, and he's kind, and he's mediating, interceding for me. And so my epithumia becomes for him. And Paul says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Two application questions, and then I want to close. First, I want to ask you the question, where are the places in your life where you are experiencing quote-unquote hell or quote-unquote death right now? Where do you feel like God doesn't see you? Do you feel tossed? You feel just subject to survival of the fittest, maybe life, economy, relationships, health? Where are the places where you feel like, if I keep going this way, I'm not going to make it? And into these very same places, I want to invite you to pray, Jesus, preach to the dead. I am dying. Preach to me. Jesus, come, find me in this place of torment and preach to me. Preach to my soul. I need external intervention because I, left to my own devices, have reached the point of no return. As we close here, I want to read to us a, a passage of, uh, it's what you would call a doxology or a praise, but it's a praise that's very specifically written for the, uh, the Son, Jesus Christ, and really uh, highlights for us the uniqueness of the role that the Son plays in human history. Read along with me as our closing. Uh, uh, follow along with me as I read for us. The Son, this is Colossians chapter 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn 
from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, and now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's pray together. God, today we end on a note of the supremacy of Christ, the efficaciousness of his death on the cross, and the power of reconciliation that we have through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus, we thank you today for taking on the thirst that we deserve so that we can be with you and through you with God. I lift up all those in our midst who are hurting, who are broken up, who are down and out, who are losing hope, who are experiencing death and hell in their life. Lord, have mercy. We ask you to save us as only you can. For those of us in the room who know the hope that is in Christ, We thank you, we praise you, we give you all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.